why are we causing problems knowing that we can fix them? Why not just prevent them from the beginning? If we have tools and resources and the knowledge to prevent harm to a patient, why would we not assess for that prior to giving the fluid? You wouldn't recklessly drive through an intersection and wreck your car knowing you can take it to a mechanic to fix it. You stop at the stop signs and you honor the traffic laws to keep yourself safe. So as nurses, why aren't we questioning each bag of fluid that we give to a patient? Hey there. I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. This podcast is for nurses who want the knowledge, skills, and confidence to respond to any emergency. With almost 20 years of experience in the ER and critical care nursing and a master's degree in nursing education, I have a lot of stories to share, and I love to nerd out and break down the pathophysiology, pharmacology, and nurses' role in emergencies. Stories bring learning to life. It is way easier to learn from and remember the stories that my colleagues and mentors have told me than anything I've read in a textbook. And that is why I made this podcast. Every episode is packed full of exactly what you need to know to handle whatever crisis that could arise on your shift. It's one thing to get the right answer on the test, but knowing how to detect when your patient is declining and what to do when your patient is crashing is what will make or break your day and might just save your patient's life. Welcome back to the Rep Response Run Podcast. Today, we're talking about a topic that, in my opinion, doesn't get enough attention or explanation in nursing school, and that is fluid resuscitation. And we all learn about the types of fluid, but how do we really know how much to give? And more importantly, how do we know if it's helping our patients? Normal saline and lactated ringers seem so benign, but they can cause so much damage when we give more than the patient actually needs. So today, we're going to talk about both sides of fluid resuscitation the benefits of adequately and accurately administering fluids and the detrimental effects of not doing it well and either under-resuscitating or worse, overdoing it and flooding your patient with more volume than they can handle. So to help me in breaking down this important topic, I've invited Corette, an ICU nurse who does fluid resuscitation all day, full time. She is all in on doing this part of medicine well, and you'll hear why in a minute. So, Corinne, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, glad to have you on. So, Corinne, can you just start by sharing with my audience who you are and how you become so passionate about properly administering fluids to our patients? Absolutely. So, my name is Corinne Zayner. I'm actually a Midwest born and raised girl, recently relocated to California. And I actually have about four years of bedside nursing experience. I worked across multiple departments, including CVICU, medical ICU, and I worked as a travel nurse throughout COVID relief. So I've worked coast to coast in numerous hospitals. And throughout that time, I took care of a lot of sick patients. But it's true that you don't know what you don't know. And looking back, I did not know much about fluid resuscitation. I didn't have tools. I didn't have the knowledge to appropriately in confidently assess my patients for fluid responsiveness. And so I actually found out about Flosonics through a recruiter on LinkedIn. Flosonics was looking for a nurse with ICU background experience, extensive knowledge in hemodynamics, and it was the perfect match for me. But my favorite thing about Flosonics is that their mission is to keep the patient at the center of every decision that we make. So let me give you a little background story. 
Dr. Kenny, our CMO, he was actually trained at Stanford. He is a pulmonologist and intensivist by training and an avid POCUS user, so point-of-care ultrasound. And he was using POCUS to help assess his patients to guide his fluid resuscitation. He knew that ultrasound was a really powerful tool. And so he just thought to himself, there's got to be a faster and easier and simpler way to assess these patients. Because ultrasound, it's cumbersome, it takes time, and you need a specifically trained physician to be able to assess the patient. So Dr. Kenny and his best friend, who was a biomedical engineer, got together and created the company Flowsonics. And then arose the concept of Flowpatch. Flowsonics wants to empower nurses to be able to use Flowpatch to assess their patients and help guide fluid resuscitation. So I knew that this company was going to be awesome. And now I get to work with Flowpatch. That is so awesome. <laughs> it's really excited to be a part of where the medical field is going and not just being stuck in the past, blindly caring for patients and making our best guess, but using technology to guide therapy. Uh, I really geek out about that stuff too. That's awesome. So I'm sure everyone is very curious, what is this flow pass that you're referencing? But before we get into that, I just want to take some time to talk about fluid resuscitation in general and go back to the patho here because it's important. So can you just break down for us why blood pressure isn't necessarily the best indicator of fluid volume status or fluid responsiveness? Definitely. So blood pressure is a static measurement. And what I mean by that is it's quite literally a snapshot in time. And you know, as nurses, we've been trained to assess our patients, take their vitals, we trend their blood pressures. It starts to give us a little bit of a warning sign as to whether they're decompensating or maybe their blood pressure starting to increase. But we make decisions and try to meet blood pressure goals, right? It helps to navigate our care. We maybe hold medications or give medications to increase or decrease the blood pressure. But what is blood pressure? It's actually flow times resistance. And I don't know about you, but as a bedside nurse, I never thought about blood pressure being flow. I sometimes thought about the resistance when I was increasing or decreasing maybe a vasopressor. But in general, I was never thinking about the flow aspect of blood pressure and how important that piece of the puzzle is. So it's really important to keep in mind that there's two factors at play here, the flow and the resistance, and those two things make up the blood pressure. Okay. So why would it be not a good idea just to look at blood pressure alone as our guiding light for how much more volume to give or if we need it at all? Why is blood pressure insufficient in helping us determine that? Great question. I'm going to give two examples. One in a case where, let's say you have your, you're taking care of your patient, their blood pressure starts to drop, and so you lay them flat. They have an A-line in, and their blood pressure increases. So you feel confident that you could probably give fluid, which may be the case. The patient is most likely able to increase stroke volume when you lay them flat, and their blood pressure is going up. But how do you know what is really changing? Is the flow going up because you're giving them more volume, or is the vascular resistance changing? And another example would be a patient who continues to remain in septic shock. Your fluid resuscitating them, you continue to give them volume, but the blood pressure is not going up. And so you need to assess for fluid responsiveness to see why isn't the fluid increasing the cardiac output. It may be that you need to put a vasopressor on or an inotrope to increase contractility or increase vascular resistance to help improve the blood pressure. Gotcha, gotcha. So I have a lot of different types of listeners to my podcast. 
from ICU to ER to med search to labor delivery. And we're dropping a lot of terms that not every one of those specialties uses very often. So let's just take a minute to break that out a little bit more. When we're looking at a blood pressure, let's say a blood pressure has dropped. None of us actually know why it has dropped, right? Did it drop because the patient has low volume or what we'd call preload, like their volume is low, and they just need a little bit more volume added? Or did their blood pressure drop because they're vasodilating, for example, they're in septic shock or some other sort of shock, and it's not a volume issue. Maybe it's like the vessels themselves going to be tightened down a little bit, for which we would give a vasopressor, like you had mentioned, norepinephrine or something. But then also the blood pressure could drop when the contractility is low. Someone who has really bad heart failure and their heart just isn't squeezing effectively, and that's why the blood pressure dropped. And sometimes we're just guessing. Is <laughs> it's the honest Definitely. truth? Like, the blood pressure dropped, everyone goes straight to fluids, right? That uh-huh. is usually like the easiest intervention. What we think of as, quote, I'm air quoting here, the safest <laughs> intervention is fluids. So we just give fluids to fix the blood pressure, but we don't always know with confidence without some advanced monitoring tools if the blood pressure is low because of volume. What if it's the blood vessels that's the issue? What if it's the heart that's not squeezing well is the issue? And so... I think it's important to keep that in mind when we're thinking about blood pressure. Like you said, it's not just like a number that's measuring pressure inside the vessels. It's also thinking about the flow. The flow is a big component of it. So exactly. Could you talk a little bit more about preload, afterload contractility and take us way back to Frank <laughs> Starling's law? Because like, we got to understand these concepts so we can properly manage patients. Yeah, definitely. These are terms that I think I had kind of forgotten as well when I joined Flosonics and I was going through my training And I kind of look back thinking, did I really understand what preload was or afterload? Or did I understand the hemodynamics? But preload is basically when the heart is at rest, how much is it being stretched, right? Like how much volume is inside of the heart when it's in diastole? So the idea is if you give a patient more fluid, the heart's going to stretch more. But is it, it able to squeeze the contractility? Is it able to eject the blood to the rest of the body, right? And so the afterload is the resistance that the ventricle must overcome to eject that blood. Frank Starling, it's a predictor of how patient stroke volume may or may not increase if they are given more volume. So there are different types of curves depending on what's going on with the patient, right? Ideally, a healthy patient's curve would have a steep or narrow a slant at the beginning of the curve, and then it starts to flatten out. So it's called the law of diminishing returns. The idea is that at some point, the patient can no longer tolerate any more fluid. Just like you and I, if we continue to drink more water, we're going to fluid overload. So when we look at a patient, we're unable to just assess them visually and say, okay, this is exactly where my patient is on the Frank Starling curve. But basically along the x-axis is the preload or the increase in volume, and the y-axis is the stroke volume. So Ideally, if you're giving a patient who's a fluid-responsive patient on the steep part of the curve, if I'm able to give them more fluid, their stroke volume should increase. And if I continue to give them more volume, at some point, they're going to plateau and will no longer be able to tolerate more. If you're still confused, I think, remember, you can Google a picture. Once I saw the picture, I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I know we learned about this in nursing school, but I don't think I ever really practiced that at the bedside. I don't remember thinking about fluid really affecting my patient. I just kind of trusted, like you said, fluids are a first-line treatment for hypotension. 
But really, fluid is a drug. And I think we've kind of gotten away from the idea that fluids are drugs. Right. Yeah. And when thinking about Frank Sarandon's curve, so if stroke volume is the amount of blood that's ejected from the ventricle with every squeeze, so 60 to 100 ml should come out when the heart is squeezed. But like you said, when we give volume, it will increase stroke volume for a bit. If you watch that curve, yeah, it should increase it as you give it. But Frank Sterling said, um, well, actually, it increases it for a bit, but then it actually can make it worse. Like you can, you can be improving, improving, improving your stroke volume, but then, like you said, it plateaus. And in fact, if you overdo it, the curve starts to dip the other direction and make stroke volume even worse. And so when we're thinking about how to improve patients' outcomes, then there's why I keep on giving volume, giving volume, because, in quote, the blood pressure is going up. Um, but what else does it do into the body? So we know that as we increase fluid volume, that contractility should improve a little bit too, right? If the ventricles aren't filling enough, then they can't squeeze as effectively either. But can we talk about the flip side? So what about whenever we overdo fluid resuscitation? What are some of the consequences of fluid volume overload? Yeah, there are numerous consequences of fluid overload that include edema, shortness of breath, high blood pressure, increased risk for mechanical ventilation, acute kidney injury, risk for hemodialysis, increased ICU length of stay, and unfortunately, increased risk for mortality. And I think both of us and probably everyone listening to this podcast, no matter which unit that you work in, we have all seen the consequences of fluid overload, right? If you're on the med surge telefloor, maybe the patient's starting to get short of breath, they're anxious. We're starting to see the signs of fluid overload early on, and then myself, having worked in the ICU, it's too late. They're already on the mechanical ventilator. Now we're trying to diurese. We're seeing the consequences of fluid overload that started either the day before or maybe even that day. It can happen that quick. Hey there. I've got some exciting news to share, and I can't wait to tell you about it. So if you're multitasking, come back to me because this is something you won't want to miss. You may already be familiar with my one-hour rapid response and rescue course, a quick dive into approaching critical patients. I'm thrilled to receive such positive feedback from nurses who found it valuable, but I'm not stopping there. I've been hard at work developing a more comprehensive, in-depth course. However, the more I work on it, the more I realize that I want to offer more than just another course to purchase. Reflecting on my years as an educator, what I truly cherish is the opportunity to interact with nurses in real time breaking down complex concepts, mentoring, inspiring, coaching, and supporting nurses as they navigate the challenges of our profession. Teaching and empowering nurses is close to my heart. Over my 20 years in the field, I've amassed a wealth of clinical knowledge that I'm committed to sharing with nurses. But there's more to being a great nurse than just understanding pathophysiology. Through trial and error myself, I've gained other valuable skills related to leadership, advocacy, resilience, which I believe can be beneficial to all nurses. So here's the plan for 2024. I wanna create a community of dedicated nurses who invest in themselves so that they can deliver exceptional patient care. This won't be just me recording myself for a podcast. I wanna teach live, address your questions and provide a platform for nurses to support one another. I'm calling it Rapid Response Academy, the heart and science of caring for the sick. Members will enjoy weekly live lessons, a community forum for questions, and personal interaction with me to better understand your needs and support you on your journey. This is uncharted territory, and I'm excited to explore it together. 
I'll be soft launching on December 1st to get to know the initial members. So those who sign up before December will receive a 25% discount and play a pivotal role in shaping the community from the ground up. The sign-up list opens on Friday, November 24th. If you're excited about more in-depth teaching, access to a supportive community of like-minded nurses, and the chance to be a part of our founding group, I'd love to have you on board. If you want to learn more about what I'm building, I put a link in the show notes for you. Now, let's get back to today's episode. I think a lot of nurses think that fluid overload is over the course of a few days. It can be just within a few liters of fluid early on. If that patient's fluid unresponsive at the beginning or at the, at the beginning of their course of care, they maybe shouldn't be given fluid from the get-go. And, you know, we all do the 30 cc's per kilogram for every septic patient, which, you know, has some evidence base behind it. But then what? Like, how do we know if that actually was enough? Or was it maybe too much? And it's almost like by the time all the symptoms kick in that show us their fluid overload, it's like, well, it's in there now. <laughs> we, can't, we can't exactly get it back right away. Can I add to that a little bit? Because I feel yeah, like yeah. there is this kind of toxic culture regarding we can just take the fluid off that we give, right? I have heard plenty of physicians say, oh, well, I'll just diurese them. Oh, we'll just give them Lasix. Oh, we'll just start them on hemodialysis. Like, why are we causing problems knowing that we can fix them? Why not just prevent them from the beginning? If we have tools and resources and the knowledge to prevent harm to a patient, why would we not assess for that prior to giving the fluid? For example, you wouldn't recklessly drive through an intersection and wreck your car knowing you can take it to a mechanic to fix it. You stop at the stop signs and you honor the traffic laws to keep yourself safe. So as nurses, why aren't we questioning each bag of fluid that we give to a patient? That's so good, Corinne. That's so good, right? Like, yes, yes, we can diarrhea it later. Yes, we can. But why don't we just do it right in the beginning? <laughs> like, yeah. Give the patient just what they need to promote the best outcome rather than like, well, we'll just give what we think might feel okay. Let's just try to just throw another liter in there. We can always diuresis it off later. But as you know, diuresis can have some consequences too, right? We're shifting electrolytes around. We're shifting volume around. Some patients' kidneys can't handle the diuresis, especially whenever they're volume overloaded and the kidneys have taken such a hit. So yes, let's just do it right from the get-go. We've thrown around like a lot of terms that I would love to define a little better. Can you walk us through the difference between when I say fluid bolus versus fluid challenge versus fluid responsiveness? Yes, we definitely need to clarify that. So a fluid bolus is going to be the amount of volume that the physician orders to resuscitate the patient. For example, the patient's blood pressure drops. As you mentioned, from the get-go, they order the 30 ml per kilogram bolus for resuscitation in septic shock typically normal saline or lactated ringers. A fluid challenge is more like a pretest. So it's going to be used to see if an increase in preload will help augment the stroke volume. So when we perform a fluid challenge in our assessments, we can perform either a passive leg raise or the nurse can administer a 250 rapid fluid challenge on a pressure bag. They're the same idea because the patient is getting 250 to 300 cc's of fluid to test the heart before giving the remainder of the bolus. But fluid responsiveness is how effectively the heart augments the stroke volume when given more fluid. So the fluid bolus is used to treat, 
The rapid fluid challenge is used in the pretest, and the fluid responsiveness is how effectively the heart is increasing stroke volume when given more fluid. Gotcha, gotcha. So the bolus is the treatment, the challenge is the assessment, and then the result, either they are fluid responsive or they are not fluid responsive. As far as the fluid challenge goes, this is not something I started my career doing. Like when I was a new ER nurse, we would say, can you fluid challenge the three-year-old in room five uh, to see how they can hold down PO fluids? We were seeing if they could tolerate PO fluids. That was like the terminology fluid challenge. So that's what I clarified that, that verbiage. Tell my ER nurses out there, you might think of fluid challenge as give someone fluids and see if they can hold it down. What we're actually doing when it comes to hemodynamics is giving someone a little bit of fluids to see how their body responds. So like you said, your options are a 250cc bolus to see if their heart can stretch effectively and accommodate that and improve from it. We can also do this whole passive leg raise is really cool. All of us carry volume in our legs. And so if you perform a passive leg raise on a patient, which is literally starting with sitting them up and getting a hemodynamic measurement and then laying them back flat and, and ra literally raising their legs in the air to kind of through gravity bolus their heart with approximately 250 to 300 cc's of fluid, depends on the patient's legs, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And how much yeah. volume is in those suckers. So you're giving the patient a temporary bolus of their own volume to see how their body responds to it. And like you said, if the body responds and seems to like it, we're like, all right, cool. You need some more volume. Mm -hmm. We would say they are fluid responsive. But if the body is not responding by improving with that bolus, either an IV fluid bolus or challenge, or from their own legs, <laughs> that fluid challenge, then we can know, okay, let's not try to fix this thing with fluids. Because in fact, if we get more fluids at this point, it will cause harm. And so there's other ways to fix blood pressure besides fluids. Let's look at other, other options for this patient. So I, I love that. As a rapid response nurse, I encounter this all the time. I show up and the nurse is like, yeah, I've already given the patient two liters of fluids because their blood pressure just remains soft. And I give the fluids and the blood pressure is better and then it gets worse. And I give the fluids and the blood pressure is better and it gets worse. And everyone's saying, oh, they're fluid responsive because the blood pressure is getting better. But... It's like an endless cycle. I mean, how much fluid can you give somebody, right? At some point, we need some more information to know, is this truly helping? Because like you said, blood pressure is not an adequate measurement to know if what we're doing is actually improving things for the patient. It might, we don't want to just fix the number, right? We don't want to just fix the blood pressure number to make us all feel better because it's not, you know, alarming anymore. <laughs> we want to actually fix the problem. And is the problem preload anymore? Or is the problem now just pure contractility? Or is the problem now that their blood vessels are just so dilated because they're septic? So it's, it's not 1980 anymore. We have more information out there. We have tools available to help us do what's best for the patients. So like you said, let's, let's utilize them. So my podcast, one thing that's really important to me is to relate everything back to a story. Like all the patho that I like to talk about, I feel like the concepts are clarified in your head when you relate to a story. Can you think of any experiences you've had as a bedside nurse or patient that you've cared for in your role with slow patch where you have seen the value of having that diagnostic tool? What stories do you have that can really like help, help drive this home? Yeah, so the first story that comes to mind, it's this case in which I didn't have any tools to help fluid resuscitate the patient. And it actually wasn't my patient. It was a coworker, but we were all assisting, you know, teamwork on the unit. 
So the patient became hypotensive, already in the ICU, I think at this point was ventilated. The nurse believed that the patient was fluid responsive because she performed a passive leg raise and the blood pressure went up. It is a strong argument. However, the the resident at the time was questioning if they could give more fluid. I don't know exactly what the patient's intake and output was at that point, right? But there's so many things we're thinking about. Okay, the blood pressure is increasing. They can probably get more fluid. Well, we don't know for sure. You know, are how much fluid have they had in the last 24 hours? And how accurate was that nurse in recording the intake and the output? But at this case, there's time, right? We're running out of time. The patient is decompensating and no one's making a decision. So had they had a tool to be able to effectively assess this patient, there wouldn't have been so much debate, right? The nurse and the resident could have had more confidence to help resuscitate this patient. And that was right before I joined Flowsonics. And I just think back to that case over and over and over and how many times I wish I would have had the flow patch to help. But a time when I did see flow patch help, I've seen plenty of times, but one of my favorite is when a patient came in, they were a DNR, DNI code status. So, you know, we want to treat this patient precisely with fluid and not overdo it because this patient can't be intubated. They don't want to be intubated. So it's important that they're managed appropriately from time zero. So the patient came in with septic shock and the nurse placed a flow patch and the patient was fluid responsive. So in this specific case, they used a rapid fluid challenge giving 250 mLs on the pressure bag. There was no passive leg raise performed. I just want to clarify that. So they gave the rapid fluid challenge. The patient was fluid responsive based on the flow patch results and then resuscitated the patient with a fluid bolus following that. The patient remained hypotensive They performed another assessment with the flow patch, again, fluid responsive, and gave another fluid bolus. So the patient received 1.75 liters total, which maybe is a little bit surprising because to me, that actually doesn't sound like a lot, less than two liters of fluid, but it was the perfect amount that the patient needed. And they were transferred to the step-down unit, avoided being mechanically ventilated, no central lines placed, no pressors. And the next day, they transferred out to MedSurge Telly. It was amazing. That is a win right there. Yeah, it was a huge win. The nurses were excited. The patient's family members were excited. You know, all around, the patient received the perfect amount of fluid. So I have two responses to these two stories. For the first one, the nurse that's trying to advocate for their patient, like kudos, absolutely. Sometimes though, it's like you just don't have enough data to prove like what your intuition says your patient needs. You know what I'm saying? I'm sure you've been in that spot before, like, but I know the patient needs blah, 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 but the data doesn't prove it yet. I still don't have the lab values back or the vital signs haven't, you know, dropped dramatically to like justify the, the thing that I'm wanting for my patient. But when we can use those advanced monitoring parameters that gives us the data to justify the interventions that we want for a patient. So we can be confident when we ask for something. When we ask for a fluid bolus, I'm confident. This is what the patient needs because I can see the numbers responding positively. And then on the other patient's scenario, you talked about the patient's a DNR, DNI. So the whole argument of like, oh, well, if we flood them with fluids, whatever, we'll just intubate them and diurese them, no big deal, we can take it off later. Well, not with this patient. They don't want to be intubated. So we have to be extra precise in our management of this patient because that precision is literally what's going to make a difference if they ever go home from the hospital. If we get this wrong, we're going to flood them and we have no way to support their lungs. Like we, don't, we don't have the, the patient has said they don't want to be intubated. 
So I love that even for someone who's a DNR DNI, that they can get such precise care and that that patient actually recovered from septic shock. (laughs) That's so amazing. And all the literature shows that, you know, we just blindly do a protocol. It isn't one size fits all. Absolutely. Everyone's heart, there's different things, factors that contribute to if a patient's going to be fluid responsive or not. And so having more information just really helps us know that we're going to do the right thing for this person and give them the best chance of actually being discharged home. Oh, I love these stories, Corinne. Thank you so much. So we've established that preload, afterload, contractility are all components of stroke volume. It's not just the blood pressure, right? Blood pressure is just one little snapshot. There's a lot of tools on the market that can help you assess stroke volume. What makes Flowpatch so awesome? Like, why are you all in on this device? What do you love about it so much? Because I've seen it. I'll put a link in the show notes for you guys to look at it as well. But can you just describe how valuable this tool is, not only for the patients, but also for the nurses? Yes, there are plenty of things I love about Flowpatch. First, it is wireless. It connects to an iPad via Bluetooth. You place it on the neck with a little bit of ultrasound gel. So there's no discomfort to the patient. It's quick. It takes less than three minutes from the start of the assessment to the end of the preload challenge to assess for fluid responsiveness. For nurses, it's super simple and easy because you just need to put ultrasound gel on the device. And we've many of us have used, you know, pedal pulse dopplers. So once you land that sound, you can see the blood flow in real time. And that is one of my favorite things about Flowpatch compared to some of the other fluid responsive assessments that are out there. With Flowpatch, you're actually seeing real-time blood flow and we collect data. We measure each heartbeat. Stroke volume and flow, we can basically use those simultaneously, right? So we measure corrected flow time. So the idea is that every time the heart beats or each time systole squeezes, we measure the time that it takes for the heart to squeeze. And the, the paradigm is that if the heart takes longer to squeeze, the stroke volume must be increasing. Okay, so you give a patient more volume, their heart squeezes harder, it squeezes longer. And this has been validated. So as the flow increases, the stroke volume is essentially increasing. But I love that nurses, they are able to drive this entire process. So the patient comes in, they're septic, they're in septic shock, they're hypotensive. They can request the flow patch. At some facilities, it's nurse-driven. They don't even have to go through a provider. They can place the order themselves, grab a flow patch, place the gel on, connect it to the iPad, put it on the patient, and begin their assessment. And this is within a nursing scope of practice to assess. Right. It's amazing. We're not administering any medication. Like, no, we're just gathering data, just like we do with our stethoscope, just like we do with our fingertips, just like we do with our eyes. We're gathering information to figure out what's going on with our patient and which direction should we go with the treatment. Can I just point out one more thing, too, as a rapid response nurse? It is mobile. So, like, I can just throw this little patch in my backpack with an iPad and go wherever the patient is and gather this valuable information without having to lug around some big old piece of equipment and some like heavy monitor. It's, I mean, they're so tiny. (laughs) That's so awesome how technology has advanced, you know, just in, in my career. I think about the ultrasounds that we use when I first started as a nurse and like the patient had to go to the ultrasound department to get an ultrasound done because they were, they were so huge. And now it's literally a patch that 
it's on a sticker that goes yeah. on your neck. I mean, that is just fascinating. We can get so much information to know is what I'm giving helping my patient or is what I'm giving actually making it worse and we need to pump the brakes a little bit. So yeah, super, super cool technology. So another question for you, and I'm sure you've gotten it before, you know, doing education in hospitals and talking about this. What do you have to say to the naysayers, the folks that are skeptical about changing the way we do things? So the nurses are saying, I've been doing it this way my whole career. You know, I don't need an ultrasound to tell me if my patients respond to fluids. Like, what would you say to them? I would first say that, you know, as nurses, we all took an oath to protect and serve our patients. This always comes back to the patient. We are advocates for the patient because if we're not advocating for them, who is? And with slow patch, as I mentioned, you have the autonomy to begin this entire process at time zero. You can place the flow patch, assess them, and precisely resuscitate them with fluid and hopefully prevent causing any harm to the patient. But with slow patch, we're designed to help improve nursing workflow. It's not to hinder. So I think it's natural for nurses to want to be skeptical and question new technologies. We're a little bit resistant to change, but just like hemodynamics, Medicine is always changing and it's important to just stay with the literature, you know, keep up, ask questions and and be open to just giving it a try. I'm sure I would have been a little skeptical or maybe a little, maybe I would have been a little excited too, a little nervous. I think maybe that's something that causes nurses to be a little resistant is that they're just nervous. Maybe it won't work. But as I mentioned earlier with slow patch, I love that you can see the data in real time. So Karen, are there any other concepts or like key takeaway points that you want to make sure that nurses take away from this episode? Yes. I want to make sure that everyone has access to this information. So you can follow us on Instagram, which is at flowpatch underscore, F-L-O-P-A-T-C-H underscore. Or you can email me at czayner at flosonicsmedical.com. And I just want to bring awareness to the fact that September is sepsis awareness month and there is actually a conference a virtual conference being hosted soon through sepsis alliance that provides a lot of great information regarding fluid resuscitation and different tools and the latest literature on what's happening out there in the medical field that's awesome i'll put all the links in the show notes and remember how to spell all those things i wanted to add one more thing too as nurses we are very persuasive When our heart has been moved to do something right for the patients and we speak up and advocate, that's when change happens. And so if you're hearing this and you're thinking, oh my gosh, I don't have anything like this at my hospital. Why are we just guessing on fluids that we're giving? Well, obviously you can't go purchase a flow patch for yourself, but this is your opportunity to go speak to your leadership and ask them about it. Do your own research and go let them know that this is available because the CEO of your hospital, I'm sure he or she is lovely, but they're usually not clinical. And so unless they know that something is needed, they're not just going to be looking for new technology for their facility. Some of these changes that happen are because nurses have spoken and said, hey, I saw this cool device at a conference or hey, I heard this podcast and there's this technology out there. It's because people have spoken and asked for it. And so I would say there's power in numbers and nurses, especially because our heart is for the patients. We are very persuasive. So use that persuasive power to advocate for your patients. We always think about advocacy as like at the bedside, but sometimes advocacy is at meetings, (laughs) but those meetings make a difference in patient outcomes. So use your voice for that. Absolutely. All right, Corinne, this has been such a good conversation. I cannot wait 
to edit it all and get it out to my listeners so they can feel empowered to manage their patients well with whatever device they use at their facility or even if it's through reaching out to the leadership to ask for the flow patch. Thank you so much for your time today and being on my podcast. Thank you so much, Sarah. This was really a really fun opportunity. Before you go, I just wanted to let you know that if you like this episode, you would probably like my course too. My one-hour rapid response and rescue course is an introduction to how I approach emergencies. If you would like to learn to think, assess, and respond quickly when your patient is crashing, then you can check out my website, rapidresponseandrescue.com. And if you message me the word podcast on Instagram, I will send you a coupon code for $10 off the cost of the course. Oh, and did I mention that the course is approved by the AACN and worth one continuing education contact hour? So if you want to level up your emergency response skills and get one CE in the process, then this course is what you want. I put the link in the show notes for you. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport. So trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing and your patient care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponseandrescue.com or on social media platforms as The Rapid Response RN. 